up, y'all? This is John Lorenz with episode 84, The McLot Mix, part one with Jason McLot himself. Now, before I introduce the show to you, I just want to give a quick shout out to all the listeners out there. Uh, thank you to all of those who have subscribed to the podcast through the website, anesthesiaguidebook.com. If you go on there and click subscribe, you'll enter your email and you will get uh, notice of when these shows drop. As soon as I hit publish on the show, you're going to get an email that says there's a new show out. Now, the new shows will hit your email inbox. You can listen to the shows immediately through the website. It usually takes 24 hours or so, you know, a day or two for them to hit all of the major podcast players like Apple and Spotify and Pandora and all of that. But if you want to be the first to know, then go on the website, drop me your email, subscribe to the show, and you'll get notice early. I don't sell your emails. I don't share your emails. I don't send that information out to anybody else. It's really just a service for you in order to get notice of the shows as soon as they drop. So thank you to everyone who has signed up through the website. And I also just want to give a shout out to some folks who've been dropping reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that. It helps others find the show. It helps the algorithms promote the show. It helps other people see the value of the show. So just want to read a couple of these to you. So just this last week, JWKCRNA says, great podcast with excellent variety and guests and topics related to healthcare and CRNAs. And then Rick Lum says, I was fortunate to shadow John and his wife a few years back at Maine Med while contemplating going to CRNA school. Safe to say that was my day of, quote, enlightenment and jump-started my journey towards getting into school. I've listened to this awesome podcast along the way, and not only has the information by John and his guests made me a better ICU nurse, but helped me mold the mindset towards getting accepted into school. I'll be starting school this fall in part to you. Thanks, John. You've got something special here. Rick Lum, thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. That's awesome. I'm so glad that... Uh, you have continued on the path and that you're um, headed into anesthesia school this fall. And then a user by the name of future CRNA extraordinaire, <laughs> which you can't beat that username. Come on. Uh, left a review and said, I've been a listener of this podcast for some time now. Episode number 67, how to thrive in training could not have come at a better time. I just started my first semester in CRNA school and was struggling to get myself together. I'm married with two sons, and it has been a little rough due to being tired. Thank you for being so open about your why and sharing your story. It gave me the motivation to get my act together and finally sit down and write down my why. I really appreciate you developing your podcast and giving students an avenue to find ways to thrive in our new profession. Thank you for all you do. So y'all, thank you so much for your reviews. I really appreciate that. They're super motivating to me. I hope they help anchor the value of the show to other people who are anesthesia guidebook curious, maybe coming across it on Apple Podcasts and they're wondering whether or not the show has any value for them. So thank you so much for sharing your reviews. And if you haven't left a review, head over to Apple Podcasts, rate that show, drop a review, let me know how you're doing. And then we'll keep going from there. We're going to keep kicking shows out. We've got a lot of content planned for you coming up, and I've been so excited to bring you these two episodes, part one and part two. So for years, I've heard about the McLot Mix. I've heard SRNAs and residents talk about the McLot Mix, other CRNAs who I've been teaching at conferences, and I've also been on a path towards implementing opioid-free anesthesia in my own practice. So I'm very excited to talk to Jason today, my former professor at Western Carolina University and friend, Dr. Mason McDowell, who you'll remember from several previous episodes on Anesthesia Guidebook when he's been a guest. 
introduced Jason and me recently and got this whole interview going. So Mason, thank you so much for connecting us. And this is all your fault. And Tom Barbos. More on that later. <laughs> all right. So let me tell you about Jason. So Jason McLott is a CRNA and he developed a mix of medications for doing opioid-free anesthesia that came to be known as the McLott Mix. It is a combination of dexmedetomidine, lidocaine, ketamine, and magnesium. In this episode, Mr. McLott himself unpacks the story of the mix's development, its efficacy, and principles for opioid-free anesthesia. He's clear that this mix helps achieve opioid-free anesthesia, not opioid-free analgesia, recognizing the role of opiates if needed in post-operative analgesia plans. Jason completed his anesthesia training at Oakland University's Beaumont Nurse Anesthesia Program and works in a CRNA-only practice at Blue Ridge Hospital in rural West North Carolina. He regularly mentors SRNAs from Western Carolina University in Asheville, North Carolina, which is my alma mater and a school that I would highly recommend that you look at if you are still thinking about getting into anesthesia school. It's a phenomenal university. The professors are top-notch. The clinical sites are amazing, and you can't beat the location of Asheville, North Carolina. I mean, come on. Uh, so if you go there, if you're at WCU, you'll have the opportunity to rotate out and work with Jason uh, at a Blue Ridge Hospital. So through that rotation, Jason gives these SRNAs exposure to a CRNA-only practice, extensive regional anesthesia experience, and of course, exposure to opioid-free anesthesia techniques. Jason also instructs regional anesthesia courses with Twin Oaks Anesthesia. In part one of this conversation, we talk about Jason's background, what led him to get into opioid-free anesthesia, and the details of the McLot mix and how he suggests that it be used. In part two of our conversation, we come back to talk in more detail on the nuances of how Jason uses the McLot mix in his own practice and how providers can instigate change in moving their practices in groups towards opioid-free anesthesia. Part two is a prime example of what Randy Moore and Desiree Chapel and I talked about in episode 82 on change management in healthcare. Hopefully these two shows with Jason McLaught get you thinking about real ways that you can build opioid-free techniques into your anesthesia practice. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Jason McLaught, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, man. I'm stoked to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Glad to be here. So you are known in the anesthesia community for the McLot mix, which is an opioid-free anesthesia technique. And I would love for you to give us a little bit of a rundown right off the bat of, of what that is. And then we'll back up and talk a little bit about your background, your experience, how you got into doing opioid-free anesthesia. So what, what is the McLot mix? So the McLot mix is just a combination of medications, uh, stuff that I was, you know, using separately that I was IV pushing. I had a little Excel uh, Google sheet type thing on my phone for every 30 minutes. I would push lidocaine and uh, ketamine, magnesium and dexmedetomidine. And then I kind of just thought, hey, why don't I just combine the stuff into a one bag and run it at an infusion rate in see how it works. And so I started doing that and I never meant for my mix to get outside my operating room, but <laughs> I'm fortunate that it did. And I'm, I'm just happy that people find it as useful as I do, to be honest with you. 
That's awesome. So we're going to get into it more specifically here in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what kind of, what kind of anesthesia care do you do? So tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit about where you practice in anesthesia right now. So I live uh, in rural Appalachia, Western North Carolina, a little town called Spruce Pine. So I'm about an hour outside of Asheville. Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit. So it's a little different topography that I've moved to. For sure. But uh, it was a welcome, welcome change. I've been here for nine years now, a little over nine years. Um, three years ago, I became a solo provider at my hospital after many different changes of, uh, I guess, groups taking over and, and hospital changes. So three years I've been all by myself. So that kind of pushed me into doing the opiate free thing and, you know, make, making sure that I was able to give patients the best care possible as being the only solo provider. So being a rural hospital, we're pretty much bread and butter cases, um, same day surgery. So a lot of the patients are in and out, you know, I don't keep people overnight unless they have, you know, colorectal surgery, but that's kind of rare for uh, our practices. So it's important that I can get patients in surgery, out of surgery very fast. I only have three nurses, so there's nobody to sit around and babysit a patient and pack you. So, you know, I kind of streamlined the anesthesia of how I do it and uh, it's, it's worked out very well. Yeah. Interesting. So imported from Detroit to Spruce Pine. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's wife's awesome. from Georgia. So it was a nice, nice halfway in oh, between cool. spot and, and we love the mountains. So I'm here. I'm here for the long haul. Oh, it's it's amazing. I uh, went to Western Carolina University for anesthesia school, but unfortunately did not get to rotate out to Blue Ridge during my time there. But it is a beautiful place out there. And so you're you're the only CRNA at the hospital, or do you have other folks that yes, work with I'm, you? Yeah, I'm the only anesthesia provider. Um, if we sometimes if we run a uh, second room, a uh, CRNA will come assist me. We actually have a CRNA that lives about a mile and a half from the hospital who's born and raised from here. So he typically works down the mountain, but he'll help me out. But I'd say 95% of the time, it's just me. So it's good. And we still get students from Western Carolina University. So they get to see what a solo provider looks like, you know, doing, doing anesthesia all by yourself. And they get to see what opiate-free anesthesia and robust regional anesthesia looks like. Nice. That is awesome. So uh, where'd you go to school? So I went to school up in uh, outside Detroit at Oakland University, uh, Beaumont Graduate Program Nurse Anesthesia. Uh, I went to Oakland University for nursing school after being in the Army for three years. I was I'm a OIF vet. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division for three years. Got out, hurt my ankle, found out about nursing, and uh, that that's how I got into it all. Yeah, for so sure. It was, a good, it was a good injury. It led to great things. Well, that's good. Well, thanks for your service, man. So tell us a little bit about how you got into opioid-free anesthesia. Was this something that you were doing in school that they promoted in school for you, or is this something that you picked up in your anesthesia <laughs> practice? Uh, not even close. So my training, I was, I felt great if my patients were narco breathing at the end of the case, if, if I had a tidal volume of 800 and a rate of six, I was like, <laughs> okay, I did a solid job. Um, I was always, um, geared towards doing regional anesthesia. Um, that's kind of what put me in, uh, at, in Spruce Pine at a CRNA only practice. When I started out of school, it was like, I knew I wanted to do regional anesthesia. I knew regional anesthesia was the future of anesthesia. And this was kind of, so I got out in 2012 is when I graduated. So 
ultrasound was just becoming more of a mainstream thing. So the interfascial plane blocks, the big one was a tap block, you know, so we're just getting into it. And, uh, you know, I would use regional anesthesia and opiates. And I did that for a long time. And I kind of realized like, well, do I really need as many opiates as I do if these patients are having great analgesia postoperatively? But, you know, unfortunately, you kind of get stuck in that rut of you, you, you train how you, you know, you fight how you train. So I train using opiates. So I continue using opiates in my anesthetic practice, in my anesthesia. Um, it wasn't until I had a, a sur- surgeon um, come up to me and he had a, a difficult patient he thought would be. Um, it was a lady who weighed 435 pounds who needed to have a paniculectomy. She had about a hundred pound panis that kept getting infected. A local tertiary hospital, um, unfortunately, didn't want to do her, was concerned about her. Uh, she had orthopnea. Well, of course, she has orthopnea. She has a you know, 100 pound panis and she's 435 pounds. So he, he told me, you know, he likes, he knows I like a challenge. He said, Hey, why don't you check out this patient for me? See what you think. See if, if there's anything you can do that they can't do at the bigger hospital. So I said, All right. So I brought her in, checked her out. My n- number one concern was airway. Yeah. And her airway was awesome. I mean, it was the most perfect airway. So I went through um, what my plan was. And at that time, Tom Barabo and Brian Seeley were on the uh, CRNA, SRNA Facebook page, briefly discussing opiate-free anesthesia, briefly, you know, little posts here and there about how it's benefiting people. And unfortunately, it was catching really no steam. You know, a lot of people thought that it was negligent behavior on our part for, to not give opiates to a patient. Really interesting. What, so, like, what year was this? So this would have been 2016. Interesting. I got out in 2015. So, <laughs> so I'm tracking right with you. Yeah. So 2016-ish is uh, when this happened. And so I was like, you know what? This might be the patient that I need to try to use not use no opiates on. You know, if I'm going to do a, a patient who's at risk of having post-operative ventilation issues, well, why not stay away from a drug that's going to cause respiratory depression post-operatively? So she came in. I explained to her, my plan is not to use any opiates. I'll do a couple of nerve blocks. I was planning on doing tap blocks on her. Um and then giving her that time, Presidex was a crazy amount of money. I think it was like $40 a vial. So I had clonidine. So I was going to use IV clonidine, magnesium, ketamine, lidocaine, and just push the, the meds. So she, she was gung-ho. I told her, you know, it could work very well or it could absolutely blow up in my face and you'll have lots of pain afterwards. You might end up having to be transferred to a larger hospital. I put it all out there for her. And she said, look, I need to have this done. You're the only one willing to actually wow. give me a chance. So let's have at it. So we did surgery. The tap block went so much better than I thought on a 435 pound person. I mean, her tap planes were fantastic. Yeah. Uh, through my lateral taps. We did the case. It was about four to five hours long. And uh, they removed about 80, 80 pounds of panis. I mean, she probably had an incision that was two and a half feet long. I mean, yeah. it was it was massive. Um, so towards the end of the case, <laughs> I start titrating down the anesthetic, getting ready for emergence, reverse her, and she's breathing like 
32 times a minute and her title volumes like 280 to 325. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is totally failed. Yeah. This is not, this, this was, this was a, not a good idea. Then I started thinking, okay, wait, let's look at the pharmacology of how volatiles work on the respiratory drive. Decreased tidal volume, increased respiratory rate. I didn't give this lady anything that was going to cause her respiratory rate to decrease. So I was like, okay. And she's been breathing through and she's breathing through a straw. So I was like, okay. I was getting a little bit more confidence that, okay, maybe, maybe things are going good. Next thing I did is I looked at her pupils. So that's one thing I still I did when I gave opiates, and I still do it with opiate-free anesthesia. I'm always looking at the pupils to see if they're dilated out, if they're having a, a, a sympathetic response and nociception. So pupils were almost pinpoint. And I said, oh wow, this is interesting. So I extubated her and she was uh, kind of semi-follower, head up, extubated her. They brought in the bed. She helped move herself over yeah. to the bed after five and a half, five hours ish surgery. We get her over and I said, How are you feeling? She said, Okay. And I said, Are you having any pain? She's like, No, not really. So we took her over to recovery. I don't really put any not oxygen on patients. So we get over to recovery. She's satting like 96% of room air. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So we watched her for 30 minutes like we normally would do. She was in no pain and she went up to the floor. She was going to stay anyways um, o- overnight um, just, just because of her habitus and, and the surgeon's concern that there could be complications postoperatively. So she goes upstairs. So I'm following her on the weekend looking at how much opiates she's taken. She's only been taking one Vicodin every six hours. Okay. She weighs now 380 pounds, maybe or so. And she's taken five milligrams of hydrocodone with Tylenol and her pain's well controlled. That's really nothing. She could have taken ibuprofen and Tylenol and probably had the same effect. So I came in Monday and I told my nurses, I said, I'm done using opiates. <laughs> and they were like, what? I said, yeah, I'm done. I was like, let's see, let's see how this rolls. And uh, the first day I went OFA totally, I had like five GYN cases. Yep. My colleague, at that time I had a colleague and he had general surgery cases. The nurses all had a, a, a syringe of dilated, you know, the carpet jet on their keyboard because the charged nurse was like, whatever Jason's doing is not going to work. So you guys need to be ready <laughs> she, for these patients to be in pain. Oh yeah. She was, she's an awesome nurse, but she's an, she's an old timer nurse, you know? So she was not, she thought what I was doing she's was call, calling your bluff. Exactly. So bring out all my patients, no, no nausea, vomiting, all GYN patients, all pretty much comfortable, no opiates given. My pa- my colleague on the uh, you know who's doing anesthesia balance anesthetic, almost every patient's puked that day. The 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 nurses are given you know one two dilated easy to his patients, and he's like, dude, what's going on? I was like, I told you, man, I'm not giving any opiates. I mean, this is what I'm doing. He's like, all right. About three weeks later, he went totally OFA. Interesting. <laughs> He was like, I'm going to see how this works for you. And then I'll, and then I'll try it out. 
So th- this is fascinating. There, there are a lot of ways that we could spend this conversation. And we talked about for time's sake, we're going to hit some broad strokes here. So how long has it been since you've given opiates? It's been pretty much six years, almost. Six years. Since I've given an opiate in the operating room. In the operating room. Now, your patients have used opiates post-op if needed. Yes, yes, most definitely. So the, I think the the biggest, um, largest misunderstanding of opiate-free anesthesia is that. It's opiate-free anesthesia. It's from the time the patient goes to sleep to the p- time the patient wakes up. No opiates. Once the recovery period starts, now we're in the world of analgesia, okay? So there's a difference between opiate-free analgesia and opiate-free anesthesia. With opiate-free anesthesia, we hope that they would have synergistic effect from the medications that they had, that it would control pain postoperatively. If they get a regional anesthetic, that it'll control pain postoperatively. But just like a balanced anesthetic. I mean, I was given dilaudid and fentanyl in the operating room pretty heavy-handed with a patient who was breathing six to eight respirations at extubation, and they're still getting a milligram to two milligrams of dilaudid in recovery, yeah. you know? So it's a whole different way of looking at it, not using opiates as the first line of defense, but the last line of defense. So try everything else, use a multimodal aspect, give medications that were synergistically together. Let's try to decrease peripheral central sensitization. And then if they do require something postoperatively, it's dramatically lower. I mean, in our recovery room, our Dilaudid syringes are only a half a milligram per ml. Yep. Yeah, which is phenomenal. And yeah, the literature backs up what you're saying. One of the things that blew my mind that started to change my practice was when I was developing a talk on enhanced recovery after surgery. And Tom Barabo and Jamie Reuter and I had a conversation on the podcast about the broad strokes of opiate-free anesthesia, which, you know, folks can go listen to that episode 42 of Anesthesia Guidebook. You know, we we talked about the interplay of OFA, opioid-free anesthesia, with enhanced recovery systems and techniques and that kind of stuff. But one of the interesting things that really changed my practice when I was developing this talk was this chart from the American Society of Enhanced Recovery. So this is a society that's looking at how do we maximize the holistic approach to patients and optimize their postoperative recovery. And they basically looked at all of these things that you could do from an intervention standpoint preoperatively, including medications and, you know, the psychological preparation for your, uh, of your patient, you know, shifting away from one of the themes of the opioid crisis in in the United States, which was telling people you'll have a completely pain-free experience in the hospital of setting more realistic expectations to say, mm-hmm. hey, you're going to have major surgery. You may have some discomfort. That's, that's normal. And then yeah. looking at the intraoperative phase, they had this little graph. And so looking at the intraoperative phase, and it had all of these layers of analgesics and other medications that interact with pain pathways, you know, steroids, dexmedetomidine, ketamine, magnesium, you know, pre-op, Celebrex, NSAIDs, Tylenol, those kinds of things, uh, lidocaine, esmolol infusions, uh, regional anesthesia, uh, nerve blocks, tap blocks, epidurals, neuroactual anesthesia, all of these different layers that could be applied appropriately to unique circumstances in the intraoperative phase but no opiates. And then for them, 
in this chart, again, the American Society of Enhanced Recovery, opiates started, as you just described, in the PACU phase as rescue analgesia, as, yeah, as you just correct. described. And that blew my mind. Uh, it was a it was a change in practice for me to shift towards um, opioid free techniques, and I think it's interesting. And I th- I appreciate you making that distinction that opioid free anesthesia is that intraoperative phase, analgesia postoperatively is a different phase. But if you're doing opioid free anesthesia intraoperatively, your need for opiates postoperatively are dramatically reduced. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, just think about it. You're giving a fentanyl right in the operating room and then they go to recovery and they're getting dilated so you've just given them superpowered you know synthetic opiates and now you're giving dilated your your the mu receptors already been you know they have some type of tolerance or they could have opiate induced hyperalgesia so now the opiates is just making that pain even worse because now they're becoming hypersensitized to the pain. So that's another component of staying away from the opiates intraoperatively is decreasing the risk of opiate-induced hyperalgesia, especially with Remy fentanyl. I mean, Remy fentanyl, I, I know people love it. They say it makes a smooth anesthetic, but look at the amount of opiates they take postoperatively. It's it's not because it's metabolized quickly. It's because it causes opiate-induced hyperalgesia. So now the patient's actually more sensitized to the pain. So just staying away from them, you know, does does well. You know, I always find it interesting. People are are interested in OFA. They want to try it. The biggest hangup is, well, what about laryngoscopy? Right. We're right. We're we're we're, we're <laughs> anesthesia providers. Pharmacology is our life. It's a sympathetic response. Give esmolol. Give a exactly. nice dose of lidocaine. So that's one of the first thing when I have students, I'm like, we're not going to give any opiates. And I want you to look at the heart rate and blood pressure. Right. Post laryngoscopy. And 75% of the time, it's textbook. It's it hasn't skipped no a change. beat. Now, if you're right. bumping around the retinoids a little bit, yeah, they're going to be stimulated, but it comes right back down. Right. So, you know, yeah, there's I mean, things I'm, you can add. Right. I make the designation for SRNAs I work with frequently that laryngoscopy is not necessarily painful, but it's very stimulating. And there's a little bit of a difference there that, you know, if you block the sympathetic response to laryngoscopy with esmolol, you can very easily skip the fentanyl. If you want to dip your toe into opioid-free anesthesia, induction is a great place to start. Just just put the fentanyl down. You don't need it. It's super easy yep. to supplement uh, esmolol or lidocaine and, you know, heavier propofol or something like that. Yeah, there's totally different meds you can use instead of using opiates as your, I think it's a nice, it's a nice crutch for providers. It's yeah. easy. You just, you can pull the two, two ML vial of fentanyl, give it, it, they're great. I mean, opiates do their job, but are they doing a good job? Are they doing the best job? Right, right. And is there other things like what are the, what are the overall consequences for what we're doing? So, I want to ask you a couple more broad stroke questions about OFA and your practice and how you respond to these kind of things that come from the anesthesia community frequently. And then I want to drill down a little bit more specifically before we go on the actual McLot mix and what else you're doing. So, I think a lot of people look at CRNA providers who are doing opioid-free anesthesia and say, well, that's easy. You're able to do that because you're doing bread and butter cases. You can block everything that you're you know, supposedly doing OFA on, or you're just not doing really difficult cases. And by golly, I'm doing difficult cases. So you know, 
uh, I got to have opioids in my practice. What would you say to, to statements like that? I would say that the literature backs up not using opiates. I mean, there's people doing hearts with no opiates that are having great, you know, uh, great outcomes, um, spine surgeries. That's uh, for, for me, I guess that's where the McLot mix I hear is being used the most is in spine surgery. So if those patients are having smooth anesthetics, decreased use of opiates postoperatively, that, you know, that right there is proof in the pudding. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's the wider scope of everything. I know that I practice it on a, you know, bread and butter cases, but a lot of these patients come in with, you know, been on chronic opiates, they've have chronic pain issues. And so, you know, if I can give them something that's safer, better, um, it's good. I like to use case examples. I had a guy who he had four surgeries by me, the previous three surgeries, and there was, he had a, uh, he had a colorectal surgery and just kept getting hernias. We had to admit him every, after every case for post-op pain management, every case. The one case he didn't get admitted for post-operatively was the first time he got an OFA. He got a quarter milligram of Dilaudid and then got discharged home. What'd you give him during so, the case? What was that? What did you give him during the case? I, I ran the McLot mix. The McLot and, mix. and the only difference was that he got the every other surgery he got tap blocks he got blocks every other case but he got opiates and in recovery for every other case after that he required more and more opiates and he had to get admitted for post-op pain control even with a block in place the last time i did him same thing but no opiates and he went home so i mean it's it's just the wide spectrum i mean a lot of cases it's you know the anesthetic's the same for a lot of a lot of cases. Now, comorbidities change how we do our anesthesia, but the pain and everything is usually the same. The trocars are going in a lot of the same places. The incisions are going in the same places. You know, unless you're messing with the back and stuff. And an abdominal surgery and nephrectomy is it's all the same. You're kind of working in the same environment. You're going to have visceral pain. So, you know, I may not be doing a nephrectomy, but I'm doing a xiphoid to pubic symphys, you know, uh, incision for open colectomy. And if the patient's up walking afterwards, cause they got a block and no opiates. I mean, I call that a win. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We've got one guy, uh, physician anesthesiologist that I work with. He's one of the cardiac guys. All of his, all of his open heart cases are, are pure opiate free anesthesia. And awesome. he's like, I don't know why my colleagues use opiates. He's like, they're dirty. <laughs> he's like, you don't, you don't need them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I, I think we have a mutual friend. He was doing uh, opiate free hearts and uh, there was complaints from the ICU that, that the patients were too, uh, too ready for extubation when they came because oh they goodness. were so awake. They weren't, you know, they weren't zonked on, on uh, fentanyl and, and Versed. You know, and I, it was kind of amazing that the, the nurses were complaining about the OFA also. So good. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the McLot mix. And so just to review, we're talking about dexmedetomidine, ketamine, magnesium, and lidocaine mixed into a syringe. So let's just talk about the mix itself. And then we'll talk about what kind of cases you're using this with. So what, what brought you to stick these things into a syringe and how did you figure out how much of each medications to put in there? 
So, you know, I started off just hand bolusing everything and I thought, okay, what's going to be the the safest thing postoperatively to decrease them having complications? So I was worried about, you know, hypotension, bradycardia, uh, heavy sedation. So I went with, you know, everything should work synergistically, right? So the ketamine and the magnesium married together at the NMDA receptor. Uh, I needed something for substance P inhibition. So let's go with dexmedetomidine. And then I needed something that was going to give anti-inflammatory response, you know, decrease anti-inflammatory response. And so went with, you know, lidocaine infusions. And so I was just kind of, you know, the lidocaine, I started running that by itself and I was hand bolusing everything. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I just combine this all into those big lidocaine bags? And then I was, you know, putting 300 milligrams of ketamine and a bunch of dexmedetomidine because luckily dexmedetomidine went generic, like right after I started OFA and I was fighting to use clonidine IV and I was going through all this pharmacy hoops because on the vial of clonidine, it says uh, for epidural use only. And they're like, yeah. you can't give them the IV. And I was like, well, I can give them the epidural. I could probably give them the IV. And I had to, and then it's actually in the, in the insert, the drug insert, it said you can, you know, use it IV. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. I was hand bolusing it. Then I put it in the bag and then I had all this waste and I don't want to waste medicine medications. And so I was like, well, what if I just put in a hundred ml bag? So I would take out 20 mLs of fluid, then put a 20 mLs of lidocaine and then, you know, the, everything else. And then I was like, well, what's even easier is I'll just draw up 10 cc's of lidocaine, add my mag, dexmedetomidine and ketamine to that. And then I, when I bring the patient in, I'll just fill up the rest of the 50 ml uh, volume with, you know, meds off their off their bag. So that's kind of the progression. I went from hand bolusing to a big bag, to a smaller bag, to just a syringe. Now, you know, for me, I use it for laparoscopic cases for all my laparoscopic cases, they get the mix. Um, you know, so that's general, you know, uh, general surgery type cases, um, oh, GYN cases, you know, let it be a laparoscopic hysterectomy or an open hysterectomy, a vaginal hysterectomy. I give the mix. Um, for orthopedic cases, for me, I just do a directed nerve block. So if I'm doing a directed nerve block, I can pretty much guarantee that that patient's not going to have any pain because I'm making that whole limb insinate. You know, with interfascial plane blocks, you can never tell them that they're going to have 100% pain relief because you're, you're giving a little bit of volume expecting it to do a lot of things in between fascial planes. And, you know, you can't guarantee where that local is going to go. So I use the mix for that. And then, you know, it decreases the amount of anesthetic agent you have to use. So, you know, volatile agent wise, I only use a half, you know, I run about 0.5 to 0.7 Mac um, because, you know, you're given a bunch of other medications that are going to work synergistically with that. So that's how I go about using the mix. So it was nice for me to see People, when it first started being talked about online, people are using it for these big back cases. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. people are using my stuff. Like, are you serious? And this is all Tom Barabo's fault. Like, I wasn't out there promoting my mix. Well, he, ma many, many <laughs> things, many things are Tom Barabo's fault, you know, which we don't, we don't have to list them all right now. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just... he, he's good at making good faults, though. I, I'll have to admit that. <laughs> making good faults. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. 
Nice. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, it was, it, it was, it's nice to see that, you know, people are getting the uses of it. And another thing I really enjoy is people who message me, you know, email me, Facebook message me and tell me like, I, the little changes that they made to the mix, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying my mix is perfect. It's, it's helpful, but you know, some people find a little less of this, a little more of that, you know, every system has different concentrations yeah. of different medications. Yeah. Some people don't like giving like ketamine, you know, so it's, 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 you know, it's fine. It doesn't, you know, it's not like, this is the way you have to use it. It's just nice that it kind of opened up people's minds to not being dependent upon opiates for anesthesia. Yeah. That's such a great line. So you've got a website. It's micklotmix.com, M-C-L-O-T-T-M-I-X.com. And I just want to read real quick right off of your website, what you're seeing is in this mix, just so people can hear it in the podcast. So if you were going to run these things as separate infusions, you would do what you've said here is lidocaine, two milligrams per kilogram per hour, ketamine, five mics per kilogram per minute, magnesium, 10 milligrams per kilogram per hour, dexmedetomidine, 0.4 mics per kilo per hour. And you, you just said that's maybe on top of like a half mag of gas or something. And you're going to run that mix at a half ml per kilo. And right. And, so you- and, and the important thing is you're going to start it at ideal body weight. Don't run it at total body weight. You, you're going to give way too, way more than that's needed for the patient. And then if they are like super morbidly obese, I think, you know, if the ideal body weight, if your actual body weight is greater than your ideal body weight plus 30%, then go with an adjusted body weight, it, you know, but I would highly recommend if you're starting out with it, just running at ideal body weight and run it up to closure. Or if, you know, if it's a really long case and you, you, know, you think, you know, you can tell if your patient's comfortable, you know, what, looking at the vital signs, checking the pupils out, seeing how things are going then discontinue it and see what you feel it's doing for your patients. Yeah. And so just to be clear, so those dosages were, you know, four different separate medications, but if you're going to mix all that in a syringe, what you outline on your website is 2% lidocaine, 10 cc's of that. So 10 cc's of 2% lido, 30 milligrams of ketamine, one gram of magnesium and 40 mics of dexmedetomidine into a syringe you say fill that syringe with IV fluid for a total volume of 50 mils. So put those medications in there, then top off the syringe up to 50 mils, then infuse that syringe at a rate of 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour of ideal body weight, or as you said, adjusted body weight if they're super heavy, and then run it until closure begins. And then you're saying shut it off or cut it down, or how do you just, back just out shut of this? it off? Shut just it shut it off. Just shut it off. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll just give them one syringe if everything looks good. If I've done a block and I can tell that the blocks kicked in working real well with it, you know, I may just stop the infusion. If I know the, the case is going to be finishing up within the hour or so, I'll just discontinue it. Okay. Um, you know, and I'm also trying to be cost conscious for the patient. If I don't need to keep pulling, you know, medications out of the pixis for them, that's good for the patient also. 
It's good for the so, patient. Uh, it's good for the hospital. It's yeah. good for pharmacy. Exactly. People, yeah. people like cost conscious, which is interesting to, to bring that point up. So one of, I think it was one of the SRNAs that I was working with recently was saying that the McLot mix is actually on formulary at their <laughs> hospital. So this is not just like some rogue CRNA mix or some rogue SRNA, like, you know, being a little chemist at the Pixis station or the anesthesia card in the OR before the case gets going, they legitimately have gotten this checked off through their pharmacy and it's on formulary. Like they order up a bag of the McLot mix, pharmacy sends it down pre-mixed for them and they run it for the case, which was super cool to hear about. How common is that in your knowledge? So, it's a lot more common than I thought it would ever be. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos so, I mean, to you, dude. Yeah, so, you know, I literally practice on an island. It's it's me. That's it. So I have students who come from other hospitals. They kind of can share stories like, hey, I, I worked with a CRNA that was using your mix, blah, blah, blah. And I teach regional anesthesia with Twin Oaks, plug Twin Oaks. And I'll have people who tell me, yeah, I was, you know, I was at, at my hospital. We have your mix on formulary. Um, different students from other programs in other states tell me, you know, they, they see it and, you know, you can go to the Pixis. That's one of the reasons truly I, I, I developed the website. I was getting so many emails yeah. from CRNAs, um, MDs, pharmacists asking about the mix, what's in it, how do you make it? And I was like, here, let me just put it out there for everybody to see. It's real easy to find. And really what was, I think the most surprising thing, well, so pharmacies are always asking about stability and right. compatibility. Right. right. And right. I didn't have those answers for them. It, I, many of the medications are compatible. I don't know how stable they are because I'm making it at bedside. I'm giving it. I've never seen any cloudiness. Well, I think now it's about two years ago, a group of researchers in, I believe it was Switzerland, actually did a study and the combination of those medications and that mix is stable for, it's like past 150 days and it still has, it's like 97%, you know, effective. So I, I was blown away. Now, did they know about my mix or is it just what they're, they wanted to use in Switzerland? I don't know. But I find it, you know, it's awesome. So now that pharmacies come to me and they say, hey, do you have stability? I just send them that study and I'm like, here you go. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's great. All right, folks, that's where we're going to end part one. Come back and pick up part two to hear about how Jason implements the McLot mix in his own practice and a little bit on the challenge of moving towards an opioid-free anesthesia plan and how to make that uh, more successful. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.